once we move past prevention and now we're into inflammation, now we're looking for things that would reduce inflammation, reduce this inflammasome, right? You want an inflammatory response so that you can fight the virus. You just want to be able to turn it off. So what sorts of herbs have been shown to have an effect on this inflammasome? Well, melatonin, as we mentioned, and ascorbic acid, but also rosmarinic acid can reduce the NL... Um, RP, sorry, NLRP3, such a mouthful, inflammasome. So, so what herbs do that? Well, rosemary, lemon balm, um, sage, oregano, basil, they all have rosemarinic acid and, um, and can reduce this inflammasome. Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast, where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative cutting-edge information from leading experts from around the world. Hi everyone, welcome to Metagenics Clinical Podcast. My name is Nathan Rose, the host, and with me today from Oregon is Professor Heather Zwicky, Professor of Immunology. Welcome, Heather. Thank you for having me. Uh, we've got you on um, as quick as we could, and I, I sense you are very, very busy, and probably um, things aren't good if you're very busy because you have a extensive knowledge in infectious diseases. So thanks for joining us at such, such short notice. Uh, can perhaps give us a bit of a background on um, your role in immunology and how you also work in the field of natural medicine. Uh, certainly. So um, I got my PhD in immunology and microbiology back in 1998, and my PhD was working on vaccine technology for tuberculosis. Specifically, I was working on how to get the immune system to respond to TB. Um, it's kind of the opposite situation that we have with coronavirus. But uh, since then, I have been teaching immunology for more than 20 years, and I've been teaching medical microbiology. And in 2002, I left my position at Yale to go to the National University of Natural Medicine in Portland, Oregon, and launch their research institute. So I've been studying the effects of different herbs, mind-body therapies, nutrition, hydrotherapy, etc., on the immune system. Perfect, yeah, perfect person to have in this uh, very um, interesting, it's probably an understatement time with this COVID nineteen. So I wanted to do like a bit of a one hundred and one of COVID, um, compare and contrast maybe to some other um, recent or even distant pandemics. I want to dive into the, the pathophysiology and then explore some of the potential um, therapies that may help either um, stimulate or boost or modulate the immune system and potentially even um, antiviral activity uh, against potentially this um, COVID. So first of all, um, the nomenclature, COVID, SARS-CoV-2, what's the correct terminology and what should we use today when we're talking about it? Yeah, so um, the... The virus is the SARS-CoV-2. Um, COVID-19 is the disease it causes. So when we're referring to the disease, we're talking COVID-19. When we're referring to the virus, we're talking SARS-CoV-2. Okay. Anyone you want to prefer to use today? <laughs> um, I usually just say coronavirus um, for the virus, and I usually just say covid um, for the, the disease, simply because it's yep. easier, shorter. I'll go with that. Okay. So with the coronavirus, this current one, this novel, as they call it, um, there's a lot of speculation um, where it came from. But 
Um, I'm curious on why it seems to be so problematic. Um, is that from a antigenic perspective of this concept of drift versus shift, or is it more our immunological response, which we'll dive into more detail um, in a moment? But just from the, the big picture, why is it such an issue at the moment? Yeah, there's, there's actually a few different reasons it's such an issue. Um, the first one has to do with how the virus binds to a cell. And so if you think about viruses binding to cells, they're going to bind through receptors. And the then you have to cleave those receptors in order for the virus to actually get inside the cell. If we look at SARS and MERS, there was no cleavage site in the proteins that were binding together. But with the coronavirus now, um, we actually have a cleavage site in the receptor. It's a furin cleavage site. And so the virus can actually get right up into the cell and um, it gets closer and more virus gets inside. So that's the first thing that is um, making it more pathogenic. The second thing that's making it more pathogenic is that there are a couple of different um, virulence factors that are inside the virus that when the virus gets in the cell activates the immune response. And one of these virulence factors, it's called ORF3 for open reading frame three. One of that, that, that particular virulence factor is really good at stimulating a very strong immune response. Um, it turns on what's called an inflammasome. And if you haven't heard of an inflammasome before, that's what we call the collection of proteins, receptors, and mediators involved in inflammation. We just group them together and call it an inflammasome. So this particular virulence factor turns on one particular inflammasome. And the problem is a lot of people are having trouble turning that inflammasome off. So it's creating what we call a cytokine storm. It's that um, the particular protein is called interleukin-1, and usually interleukin-1 would be stimulated early in a viral infection. It would drive fever. It would make people fatigued and malaise, and then it'd be turned off. But with this particular virus, the gene doesn't get turned off, and so you get an overproduction of interleukin-1 beta, and that's problematic. So that's what's making this virus more pathogenic. The other thing is that this virus has um, a spike protein that is binding to both the respiratory system and the cardiovascular system. It's called ACE2. And a lot of docs have heard of ACE2 because it's the receptor that we associate with like hypertension, renin, angiotensin, aldosterone. Well, ACE2 is expressed in your vascular endothelial cells, and so we're seeing that the virus gets into those cells, which is expected. It's expressed in the lung, the kidneys, and the GI tract, and that's why some people are having GI upset with this particular um, virus. But again, with ACE2, because it's expressed in the cardiovascular system, if you have any sort of cardiovascular damage, um, you're now getting attacked by a particular virus, and that's the cells that are getting destroyed. So we've got a number of different reasons why this virus is problematic today, and frankly, why it's going to be problematic in the future. Even if people recover, there's going to be lung damage and cardiovascular right. damage that we're going to have to deal with. Wow. Okay. I might just take a step back and we'll, we'll certainly get back into the ACE2 and the, the virulence factor. Um, first of all, 
I just want to sort of compare and contrast, but um, look at the profile, the characteristics of, of um, coronavirus. Um, so just at the 101, like how is it spread? What's the sort of transmission rate, what they call the, the R0? Um, you know, basically what, what, what's yeah. the trajectory of this, this virus? So this virus is spread through respiratory droplets. Uh, to our knowledge today, it is not yet airborne. It could mutate to become airborne, but um, it has not. Um, you know, the question about what's the R, how is it, how many people can one person spread it to is changing. Uh, and that probably has to do with the fact that the virus mutates. So when we were seeing the virus active in Wuhan, we were seeing that the spread was one person could infect two other people. Um, for comparison, measles, it's one person can infect 18 other people. So we thought, oh, this isn't going to be so bad. However, at least right now in the United States, we're seeing it as one to four. One person can affect four other people. Right. Um, so it's becoming more infectious is, is what that data is telling us. Okay. And, um, how does it compare to other pandemics? And I, I know this is very difficult because of demographics, et cetera. Um, you know, unfortunately that the death rate is climbing. However, there has been some other pretty significant, um, pandemics in the recent and more you know longer history such as the spanish flu but like with the hn1 and the sars ebola etc they sadly claimed a lot of lives but i don't feel like there was certainly wasn't the um global sort of shutdown essentially that we're facing so i suppose my question is did we underreact to those ones or and this is an appropriate reaction not just um yeah trying to get a sense of yeah. the the state of affairs if that makes sense yeah, it's it's um this virus is killing people much faster. So right. if we look at um, past epidemics or pandemics, um, the flu kills you know in the United States probably eighteen thousand people per year. Um, what we're seeing in the United States for this pandemic is in you know about about four weeks now we're up over 4,000 people already. So it's, it's killing people faster. The other thing is because uh, this virus spreads easily and because there is a mild infection, there's a mild version that people get, um, people are able to be carriers without knowing that they're infected. Yeah. And so what we saw with um, SARS and MERS is that everyone who got the virus was hospitalized because it was so destructive uh, and quickly destructive. And so they were hospitalized, which meant they didn't spread. With this virus, because there is a mild version, there's a huge amount of spread. And the result is an inability to control it. Right. So the, with the other infections, almost a, a natural self-isolation or distancing because you became so ill so quickly than exactly. you were. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that leads on to yeah, what's the onset from the the time of time of um, contracting it to the to the expression of the disease? 
our best guess right now is about 48 hours. So you get exposed roughly 48 hours later, you're spiking a fever. And then you might have that infection um, where you feel it for somewhere between 10 and 14 days. The reason for that is that your immune system hasn't seen this particular infection before. And so the first time you see one type of, of virus, you're going to respond to it in 14 days. That's the typical immune response. The next time right. you see it, you half it, right? So so if you think about flu, the first time you were exposed was likely when you were a child and you had a 14-day response. And then by the time you're an adolescent, you've been exposed a lot. And so now you're you're responding within two or three days. And by the time you're adult, you have a, a 24-hour flu. Um, with COVID-19, we haven't seen it. So the disease is longer. Right. So does that go back to this um, antigenic drift versus shift? Like we've we've experienced coronaviruses before, but has this one mutated yeah. so greatly that it's a completely new beast to well, us? Yeah. The estimate right now is that it's 70% like a typical coronavirus, which it's still a coronavirus, but it's pretty different. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I didn't realise it took so long for the body to process if you want a better term um a, a completely new um infection yeah. so yeah it really is a, a perfect storm with this new identity uh and the, the fact that it targets um that gets in so easily to the cells and then it has this um you know a, a be- effects uh, ironically on overstimulating the immune system in, in a sense so that sort of yeah. all compiles this perfect sort of storm and we um, know, by the way, that everyone has the overstimulation, but for folks who are getting hospitalized, they are definitely getting overstimulated. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm re- really looking forward to get to that part, but I just want to finally, um, which touches upon susceptibility, it seems to be attacking, unlike the flu, which can attack or affect all sort of age groups or often young and old. This seems to be more elderly. Anything above and beyond that, like any other health conditions, et cetera, that seems to be more prevalent in these sufferers? Yeah, um, folks with diabetes, folks with hypertension, uh, cardiovascular disease, they seem to be at higher risk as well. One of the theories is that is because they have underlying inflammation. And so now if you turn on the inflammatory response, it's already at a particular level and you're raising it even higher. Um, Another theory is that with the diabetes is that um, high blood sugar increases inflammation. So you make a much larger immune response if you have high blood glucose. Okay. And um, people with lung issues and smokers, are they more at risk? You know, um, we're not seeing that. We're also not seeing people with asthma at higher risk, which you would expect. But that could go back to the mechanism of the immune response. Let me know if you want me sure. to talk about that right now. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> well, it's yeah, so, fresh in your mind. <laughs> yeah, no problem. So, so usually when you start an immune response to a virus, you start with um, an inflammatory response. You make those same cytokines that this virus is making you overmake. So you start with IL-1, IL-6, TNF-alpha. And then from there, you move into what's called a Th1 response. The Th1 response is specific for bacteria and virus. And um, that's how you're going to actually clear the virus. Then after the Th1 response, now you want to resolve the inflammation. 
Um, and then finally, you want a memory response so that if you ever get exposed again, you've got cells ready to respond. So what we're seeing with this Th1 response is that Th1 is in balance with Th2, which is the type of response you have to asthma. So if you have a Th2 response happening in your lungs, it can actually slow down the Th1 response and you don't get the same overreaction that we're seeing in people who are being hospitalized. That's the theory. Right. Interesting. Um, and so that's the... That's the, the quote-unquote cytochrome storm, I presume, that um, excessive T-alpha-1 imbalance um, yeah. and, and that failure, failure to get into that resolution and um, subsequently memory. Exactly. Yep. All right. And just touching back upon, um, so that's the body sort of creating damage to itself, the collateral damage. Now, can I just circle back to the direct damage that the, the virus does um, via this ACE um, receptor? Yeah, so, so um, again, ACE receptors tend to be on uh, a number of different tissues, but specifically, as we're thinking about vascular endothelial cells, if you now infect those cells with a virus, the only way you get rid of the virus is to kill those cells, right? So now you're going to get a lot of cellular damage in your vascular endothelium, in your in your um, cardiovascular system. There's also ACE2 expressed in the renal tubular epithelium. So this is your kidneys. So now when we kill cells in the kidney system, we're going to be doing damage there as well. Um, and then the GI tract. So because of where ACE2 is expressed, when your immune system attacks virus, that is in cells that have ACE2 on them, it's killing off cells of these other systems and that's going to cause damage. Wow. And uh, I heard you the other day mention this may also happen in the central nervous system. Yeah. So there's some evidence that um, ACE2 is in the central nervous system. And there's some evidence that came out of China suggesting that some people had neurological presentations with coronavirus. Right. Uh, so while we're on this area then, um, looking at medicines that, you know, patients have hypertension um, and then with the immune system, there's all this discussion about ibuprofen. So let's start with hypertensives, ACE inhibitors. Um, does that put a person more at risk or less? What's the interaction there? Yeah, so ACE inhibitors increase the ACE2 receptors, which means that if people are on ACE receptor, a a sorry, ACE um inhibitors, they are likely going to have a higher viral load because the virus will be able to get in more cells. And right. that may give them increased risk of death um, and more heart damage. Now, I, I want to make a, a clarification here because there's a lot of docs out there who have been doing their research on ACE2 receptors and have learned that vitamin D and vitamin A can increase mm. the receptors. They do but they don't increase it the way that a pharmaceutical increases ACE2 receptors. And you do need some ACE2 receptors because this is how you're going to open up the bronchioli. Like there's a reason that those ACE2 receptors are there. So you don't want to shut it down. Um, you, it's just that with pharmacologic, ph pharmacologic agents, um, you see a much larger increase with the ACE2 receptors. So um you know, there's very little evidence out there right now, which says take people off ACE2 
inhibitors because we don't want their blood pressure to be high. Yeah. Because we know that the other reason that people die from this virus is that it goes into their lungs and it causes a secondary pneumonia. Your lungs in uh, get an infiltrate of edema, liquid, and then you can't breathe. And so that's going to increase blood pressure to try to circulate oxygen to more organs. And if we don't have you on an ACE2 inhibitor and you're supposed to be on one, like that's where you get danger of stroke. So um, while this is a very real mechanism, how to deal with this mechanism is questionable. Don't, don't exactly know what to do here. Some people are suggesting that you switch to ARBs, um, and there's a lot of discussion in the medical community around it right now. And then you said ibuprofen. Um, ibuprofen actually increases the ACE2 receptor too. It's another pharmacological agent that increases ACE2. And since, again, the renin, angiotensin, aldosterone system is dysregulated already in people with active disease, and ibuprofen is a COX inhibitor and cyclooxygenase enzymes are essential for renin release, you're just putting more stress on the system. So the idea there is that if you can switch to, well, acetaminophen, although now I'm hearing from other colleagues that acetaminophen could also be problematic, it's probably not as problematic as ibuprofen. Um, acetaminophen is problematic because it's decreasing glutathione, which is a big antioxidant. And the inflammatory uh, response is making too many oxi reactive oxygen species. So acetaminophen isn't so good either. So we're kind of in this place where here we have a, a infection that's increasing headaches and people want to take ibuprofen or acetaminophen and both are not recommended. Sure. Thank you. Okay, um, let's move on to some therapies, both pharmaceutical, potential pharmaceuticals and natural. Um, but I suppose importantly, it's probably worth reiterating the, the non-pharmacological approaches, which we're hearing all over the, the media, uh, rightly so. So anything you just want to reiterate about like social distancing, et cetera? Oh, absolutely. Um, social distancing is super, super important. Um, one of the reasons for social distancing is so that you prevent yourself from getting sick, but also um, staying, you know, what, what we're experiencing in the United States is we're now getting orders, you know, to um, stay inside and, you know, go about our daily business. Any type of stress that we put on the medical system right now diverts the attention from our physicians being able to treat COVID-19. So if you get in a car accident, you ha go to the emergency room, well, there's one less bed and there's one less mask. So all of the stuff that is being recommended from a public health perspective is both to protect you and to put less stress on the medical system. Um, so that's, I, I think people have had social distancing beat into their head and I don't need to lecture anybody anymore. Yeah, sure. Okay, now moving on to treatments. Now, I don't think there's any or many trials from both natural or um, conventional world, but what are some of the ones like um, antivirals, this is conventional, um, that are being considered and, and tried? Yeah, so so you're absolutely right. There's no research at this point. So everything I'm going to say is hypothetical, although I do know that they have been trying um, different antivirals. So 
for first conventional, um, this is a retrovirus. So one of the things we would look at then are antiretrovirals, like things that we would use for HIV. Um, I know that the, the drugs that we use for flu have been tested and don't work, and that's likely because uh, flu binds to sialic acid and not to ACE2, and so the drugs are actually designed to block um, the sialic acid hemagglutinin interaction, and this virus doesn't work through hemagglutinin or sialic acid. Um, but the the expectation has been that the antivirals for HIV, um, at least one or more of them would be effective for this particular virus, since it is also a retrovirus. Uh, some other conventional things that have been looked at or are being looked at, uh, there is a correlation between melatonin levels and people being healthy. So children have higher melatonin levels, uh, pregnant women have higher melatonin levels, and both seem to get the disease a lot less. So there's a theory that melatonin may actually be helpful for fighting this disease. And the reason for that would be that melatonin, it um, shuts down this particular inflammasome. Uh, it's called NLRP3. And so uh, if you hypothetically took melatonin, you may have the same anti-inflammatory effect. We don't know that for sure. And of course, melatonin makes you go to sleep. So this is something that you'd want to take during the day. But melatonin is anti-inflammatory. So there's potential there. Another drug that's being tested is um, hydroxychloroquine. And um, chloroquine is a anti-malarial medication. What it's been shown to do in vitro is to block the ACE2 receptor uh, interaction with the spike protein of coronavirus. And um, the in vitro data looks beautiful. Uh, we don't know that it will work in vivo, but there theoretically is a possibility. What I would say before people go out and start stockpiling hydro um, hydroxy chloroquine is that it is really toxic. So this isn't something that you want to just take. Uh, this is something that if you are really, really sick, then maybe we give this to you to try to block the spread of the virus in your body. But um, there's some nasty side effects of, of chloroquine. Uh, it causes nausea and diarrhea and all sorts of those sorts of effects. And then eventually it kills your liver. So, you know, again, not something you really want to take unless you absolutely have to. Uh, let's see, any other conventional drugs that I've heard of? Um, is there remdesivir? If I pronounced yeah. that correctly. Yeah, the remdesivir, that's that's one of the HIV drugs. Okay, um, yep. Yep, so that's... That's one of the ones that we're looking at. Oh, you know, something that strikes me, and I'll just say this here, it hasn't been tested, but it strikes me that it would be possible. And that is that, um, as I mentioned before, this particular inflammasome is overproducing interleukin-1. And we do have interleukin-1 biologics. Uh, we use it for rheumatoid arthritis. And so hypothetically, you could use an IL-1 biologic on this particular virus. Interesting. And what about um, a vaccine? How long do you think they'll be, um, you know, readily available? 
That is a really good question. I know that the vaccine trials started at the University of Washington this last week. Um, however, in order to see if the, the vaccine really works, you have to be challenged once you have the vaccine. And we have to look for long-term immunity. And we aren't going to know if, this, if a vaccine develops long-term immunity for at least eight to 10 months. Um, because once you're vaccinated, you should have a decent antibody response for four to six months just out the get-go. So, so that's a, it's a good question. And, you know, we're looking at 18 months out. That said, there's some question about whether there's good long-term immunity developed to this virus as it is. So um, we're, we're keeping our fingers crossed. Okay, thank you. All right, so let's turn our attention to natural and integrative um, medicine. Now, um, this is somewhat of a, a controversial area, and as you mentioned, um, there is no evidence to date and probably won't be um, for a long time because of funding, et cetera. But, uh, and people online are claiming, make, some people are making some bold claims, and then the natural medicine naysayers are getting quite vitriolic saying, um, <laughs> you know, no, this natural medicine works. But um, I think we can probably find a middle ground from looking at existing data and Again, we know that this um, coronavirus is a, a different entity to others, but um, natural medicines, you know, one one idea is to modulate this. You mentioned that tidal model of immunity where you get that spike in inflammation and that decay um, as we develop memory. So we can sort of hopefully theoretically facilitate this. So um, what are some of the quote-unquote immune stimulants that may theoretically help protect a patient um, during this time? What's some of the big ones that come to mind for you? So I think about this just like I think about any infection. So I think, first of all, prevention. And in the prevention realm, I would think that some of the herbal antivirals that are out there might work. Do we know they work? No, but they have, there have been multiple herbs that have been shown to be effective against other upper respiratory viruses and other retroviruses. And so there's some hope. Um, and those would include things like astragalus, echinacea, and I know that's a hot button, um, golden seal, elderberry. Some of those sorts of things might be effective um, as preventive, right? Uh, yeah. We also know that you need to have a healthy gut. Um, we know that if we disrupt the microbiome, that people are far more prone to getting infections. So that's where we think about food um, and specifically how many vegetables you're eating and are you getting the appropriate micronutrients like vitamins A, D, and C. We know that vitamin C, ascorbic acid, can reduce that NLRP3 inflammasome, so it may be really helpful, um, and there's data showing that. Uh, sleep. Sleep is super important for prevention because um, sleep is involved in your immune system essentially having its regenerative state, just like your brain gets its regenerative state. And then reducing stress. Um, we know that IL-6 uh, one of the inflammatory cytokines, IL-1, IL-6, TNF-alpha. IL-6 is associated with anxiety and catastrophizing. And so this is going to make the infection worse. So getting people to calm down is critical. Mm. Um, we know from a drug perspective, the Chinese actually were using an IL-6 biologic that they've now given to Italy for their uh, epidemic. And 
it appears to actually help uh, with the disease. So again, reducing IL-6, um, both preventatively and uh, for the severity of the infection. Once we move past prevention and now we're into inflammation, now we're looking for things that would reduce inflammation, reduce this inflammasome, right? You want an inflammatory response so that you can fight the virus. You just want to be able to turn it off. So what sorts of herbs have been shown to have an effect on this inflammasome? Well, melatonin, as we mentioned, and ascorbic acid, but also rosmarinic acid can reduce the NL. Um, RP, sorry, NLRP3, such a mouthful, inflammasome. Mm. So, so what herbs do that? Well, rosemary, lemon balm, um, sage, oregano, basil, they all have rosemarinic acid and, um, and can reduce this inflammasome. Once you move past inflammation, now we're going to go to the Th1 response, right? And so Th1 response is going to be improved with uh, things like garlic and mushrooms and, um, you know, probably our best inducer of Th1 is, is really mushrooms. Good research on that. Um, and then you want to resolve the infection. And so for resolving the infection, that's when we think about things like fish oil. And um, that's where uh, you can actually bring up the Tregs and decrease Th1 and get that infection to calm down. Um, but really, we're looking later infection for that. And then finally, the memory response. And for the memory response, really, we're going back to diet. We're thinking about getting the gut reconstituted. Um, so I'm thinking prebiotics. I'm thinking probiotics. Um, and colostrum and, and those sorts of things. So I think about it in the various stages and think about what you would do to support each stage of the immune system, because that's really more how we think about um, natural substances is that you're not using one thing. It's not a one-to-one -one ratio, right? Um, like it is with pharmaceuticals. Yeah, that's a really fantastic model. I like those stages and all the options there. Um, and also including those upstream drivers like um, sleep and stress when you ever, if you're getting less than six hours of sleep, you struggle to make antibodies and natural killer cells, et cetera, like that. So um, very good re reminder. I just want to dive into a couple um, specific ingredients um, that piqued my attention. Um, Medicinal mushrooms, uh, very popular for good reason. And you've done some research in this area. What's yeah, some of the... um, we, we published a, a review article, actually, where we looked at 395 different studies of medicinal mushrooms for cancer um, and showed that almost every one of the medicinal mushrooms is capable of driving a Th1 response. Most of them are also effective at driving a Treg response when necessary. So they're responding to the microenvironment. And if the microenvironment has more... Um, has too much TH1 cytokine, then it brings it down, which is really uh, popular, right? That's, that's the mm. adaptogenic uh, effect. But yeah, um, it's an older paper now, but the research all just continues to back that up. Yeah. And you got any sort of favorite uh, mushrooms? Uh, shiitake, maitake, uh, cordyceps, turkey tail. Yeah. Great. Um, any knowledge of uh, there's this novel 
um, ferment of shiitake, uh, quite a silly name, active hexose correlated compound or AHCC. Um, that seems to maybe have properties above and beyond your you know, conventional mushrooms. Do you know much about that extract? I don't know a lot about the extract, but I do know that the fibers from the mushroom, the beta-glucan fibers, are acting not only on the immune system, but also activating on the microbiome. So ah. that you're, yeah, so you're having a, a double whammy there, which is kind of nice. Yeah, great. And something that you've also been active on or in is... um specialized pro-resolving mediators and i've done a recorded podcast with charles serhan i was fortunate enough to do that and uh, he really stressed that these spms aren't immunosuppressive they they resolve inflammation and in fact tend to um, enhance the antimicrobial response of the body uh how do you would you see these um substances fitting into say treating a patient with covid yeah, I think SPMs are fantastic. Um, we've done a clinical trial on using SPMs for pain and have had great success. So um, I like them. Where I put them in the process is in that resolve phase. So after a TH1 response, when you're starting to try to re bring your immune system into balance, that's a perfect spot for SPMs. They can replace fish oil. Okay. And now to more controversial ones. You, you did touch upon this one earlier. Um, the vitamin D, yeah, I, I've had a look at some of the claims by some of the um, key opinion letters, which I really respect. But I do, my view is that a lot of this is extrapolated from like mouse models and transgenic mice about the ACE2 receptor. And I feel like you need to weigh that up against the, the plethora of data of vitamin D, like preventing flu, even though again, flu is different to the, the coronavirus and all the benefits like with the antimicrobial response from vitamin D. So what's your position on vitamin D for the prevention, at least of um, COVID-19? My position is that vitamin D um, has an effect on over 200 different pathways and the ACE2 is just one. And if you take out the vitamin D, those other 199 are going to suffer. And so I, uh, I, rec I recommend vitamin D. Yeah. Okay. And one I, I can't find um, the reference for, but I heard a, a week or two ago there was some concern about zinc because the the coronavirus utilizes zinc. But I'm sure a lot of you know um, ingredients or nutrients are used by infections as well as the host. So any yeah. concern about um, maintaining adequate zinc levels and and or even um, supplementing with zinc? No, no concerns. The only the only issue I usually have with zinc is usually people take so little that it's not effective. Right. Um, so, you know, if you're going to use zinc and you think it's it's helping you, then you actually have to use a dose that's therapeutic. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. All right. Well, I think I've covered everything from the 101 to the role of um, natural medicines fitting into um, COVID-19. Any sort of closing remarks you'd like to make around this current and evolving area? Uh, potentially. Am I allowed to talk about a product? Uh, ingredients. You can talk about ingredients. I can talk about ingredients. A uh, human yep. milk oligosaccharide is fantastic in that memory phase when people are trying to um, build their memory T cells. Uh, so uh, products that contain human milk oligosaccharide, uh, it's a prebiotic uh it's found in breast milk and it really builds the gut back up so that you're ready to be ready to fight the next infection. 
Uh, yes, thank you. Yeah, I was over in the United States last year and I noticed that they're quite popular. I don't think they're in Australia and New Zealand yet, but um, well, it might be a bit difficult now with the commerce grinding to a halt, but something for uh, us local people to, to look into. All right, uh, Heather, it's been fantastic. Yeah, I really appreciate your time and yeah, your knowledge is um, yeah indispensable, um, both from understanding yeah immunology and um, microbiology, but also putting natural medicines into context. Um, any where we can follow you, any um, references, resources for yourself and probably even for COVID-19, anything people should be following? Yeah, you know, we just revived my website today <laughs> because mm-hmm. we started realizing that people were going to need a way to to reach me and to read what I'm, I'm talking about. So heatherswiki.com is the best way to find me. Okay, well, I hope you get some rest as well. Um, and yeah, wishing all the best for yourself and your family. And yeah, it's going to be a, a, a different, I suppose, a different, uh, just life is going to be different for a while. Um, and I hope, yeah, yeah, I hope um, we get through it comfortably and um, all your loved ones are safe and well. And um, yeah, I'd like to pick your brains in the future when um, probably less critical things to talk about. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast. Find us on iTunes and leave a review. Join our practitioner-only Metagenics Facebook group to be informed of new podcast releases, keep up to date with key industry updates, and more. Visit metagenics.com.au to find useful links and resources relating to this podcast and sign up for our e-newsletter.